Our text this afternoon will be what we confess in Scripture as it's summarized in Lord's Day 5 of the Catechism, and to give that some background, we'll read from Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32, this is the notorious incident of the golden calf. God has just given his law in Exodus 20, covenant law, and he's described how he wants to be worshipped, made arrangements for that worship to happen in the intervening chapters, and then we get to Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. And behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord as God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory, or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. 
He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not... Please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. So far... Now we also read from the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 5, page 521. Lord's Day 5 reads as follows, Since, according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment, how can we escape this punishment and be again received into favor? God demands that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, we must make full payment, either by ourselves or through another. Can we by ourselves make this payment? Certainly not. On the contrary, we daily increase our debt. Can any mere creature pay for us? No. In the first place, God will not punish another creature for the sin which man has committed. Furthermore, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. What kind of mediator and deliverer must we seek? One who is a true and righteous man and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who is at the same time true God.
Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, do you ever compare your church to society around us? Most of us, as church community, come from a similar social economic background. Most of us are part of a stable family unit. We are, for the most part, gainfully employed. We have a regular income. Most of us have little or no experience with the darker side of life. So that's an area that we don't know much about compared to maybe other people outside of the church. However, you don't need to go very far to learn what the dark side looks like. You could, for example, go to YouTube and type in the phrase sentencing reactions. There are all kinds of video compilations of people who come from a very different background to us and who have committed terrible crimes. And the compilations show their reaction when they are sentenced for their crimes. Some of them receive life in prison. Others are sentenced to death. Many of them have already had a sad life. Some appear to come from a disadvantaged social background. Some seem to have suffered neglect or abuse at a young age. None of them have wisdom. All of them have committed horrific crimes. In the end, they are responsible for their actions. Therefore, they are the ones who need to be sentenced. And when you watch these compilations, you are struck by the dreadful finality of the sentencing. There is no going back. There are no second chances. It is a dreadful thing to face justice when you know that you are guilty. How much more dreadful must it be then for human beings to face God's justice? God demands that his justice be satisfied and his justice is perfect. He is never mistaken. He never misunderstands. He never has inadequate information. He possesses unlimited resources. He has an eternity of time. There is no appeal with him. No parole is possible. Can you face that justice? Christ did. That's the gospel that we will encounter again this afternoon. The question is, who can face God's justice? Can you? Christ did. So the first thing that we should note is the concept of justice to begin with. The catechism already introduced this at the end of Lord's Day 4, and it goes back to it here in Lord's Day 5. And it's worth it for us to pay attention to this because we don't always see this in terms of justice. We don't see this as an issue of justice. We understand on some level that, that the relationship between God and his creatures is broken. But we might think of that in terms maybe more of, of forgiveness and of restoration. However, the catechism, drawing on Scripture, goes back to the underlying concept of justice. It says God demands that his justice be satisfied. Why can't God just forgive and forget? Why does he need satisfaction? Well, forgiveness without satisfaction would cancel out God's justice. God demands that his justice be satisfied if he were to forgive sin without dealing with it, then it would never be true forgiveness. If it is not true forgiveness, then there is no true security. 
To forgive and to forget without dealing with the underlying issues will not bring glory to God, but it will also destroy all true faith, all true worship, because it takes away the only ground by which a sinner can approach God, which is satisfaction. So this is actually a a key point that the Catechism raises here, that God has justice and that God demands that his justice be satisfied. What the Catechism is saying in this first answer is really the only thing that could be said. God demands that his justice be satisfied. He doesn't want mere compensation. He does not want mere restitution. He wants his justice to be satisfied. What is satisfaction? It simply means to give all that God's justice demands. Not just to fix things that are broken, but satisfaction in its ultimate form means that the Lord receives all that is due to him. And what is that? Well, Jesus himself told us. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's... And he said, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So this is the call for obedience that has lain over the life of all human beings from creation onwards. And the call was never rescinded. Nowhere did God ever say that, that he has changed that demand. Man's obligations still stand. We are to love God because there is nothing and no one greater to love Think of the words of Psalm 96. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering. Come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. And we have not done that. By nature... We are inclined to reject the Lord. We ignore his commandments. We disrespect his self-revelation. We are blind to his glory. And it's not just a momentary lapse of reason. That's the essence of who we are, apart apart from God's regenerating work in our lives. And it is true. People do have some insight into spiritual things. Think of the Canons of Dort, chapter 3, 4, article 4, to be sure. There is left in man after the fall some light of nature, whereby he retains some notions about God, about natural things, and about the difference between what is honorable and shameful, and shows some regard for virtue and outward order. But so far is he from arriving at the saving knowledge of God and true conversion through this light of nature, that he does not even use it properly in natural and civil matters. Rather, whatever this light may be, man wholly pollutes it in various ways and suppresses it by his wickedness. In doing so, he renders himself without excuse before God. Clearly, fallen man is not able to satisfy God's justice on his own. By definition, people can't even understand what God's justice is because they are dead in their sin. So they're not able to take what God demands and to give it voluntarily. For that reason alone, already, man is not able to make this payment simply because we don't even know what the currency is, so to speak. Think about it. Payment would mean to render to God what is due. That means unbroken obedience to God's law, unbroken faith in God's person, unbroken trust in God himself, and it's not something that people can do when they are spiritually dead. 
In fact, even in hell, a sinner is not able to make the payment that God, God's justice demands. Why not? Because sinners in hell are in eternal rebellion against God. Like so many of the people in those video compilations that, that we touched on earlier, they refuse to accept their verdict because they cannot recognize their guilt. So they exist in eternal rebellion against God. They eternally refuse to submit to his verdict. They eternally reject any possibility of the good. They eternally hate God and their neighbor. Therefore, they are eternally guilty in the eyes of God. So this idea that that people in hell are paying God by their pain and suffering is not actually correct. That's not what hell is about. After all, the the whole idea of payment suggests that one person gives something to another. But hell is a place of rebellion, remember? It's a place where sinners eternally reject God. They're not paying him anything at all. Besides that, the full payment that God's justice demands is to render to God what is his due. And again, what is God's due? It is not just that you fix what is broken. It is unbroken obedience to God's law. Unbroken faith in him. Unbroken trust in him. If people already refused to do that when they were on earth, why would it be any different in hell? So hell is not a place where sin is paid for. It's a place where God's justice is satisfied. By whom? By God. God demands that his justice be satisfied. He fulfills this demand by punishing those who who hate him. Since they continue to reject him, they can never make full payment. They never will be able to make full payment. And that is why hell is eternal. So there's no way of satisfying God's justice, even though we must make full payment. We cannot do it by ourselves. We cannot, we daily increase our debt. We cannot do it even, even if you were to go to hell. So what do we need? We need a mediator. We need a deliverer. But what kind? What should he do? Well, this afternoon we read from Exodus 32, the famous golden calf episode. And he, in, this, in this chapter we see Moses at his best. Moses intercedes here for the people two times, actually, not just once. The first time in verse 11, when God threatens to destroy his people. The next time at the end of the chapter, verse 31, when Moses comes back. And these two, two um, sections, if you look at them separately, are interesting because they represent two different ways of approaching the problem of sin. So in this first section, God tells Moses that the people have turned away from him. And he says in verse 10, he says, Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and that I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. So this is actually really interesting. Think about it. If he he really wanted to destroy his people in that moment, he would have simply done it. He wouldn't have told Moses anything. Moses would have gone back down the mountain and found out that he was alone. But he, God doesn't do that. Instead, he tells Moses what he wants to go and do. And by telling Moses, he gives him an opportunity to interact with that, to protest against that. He's basically giving Moses the opportunity to speak up for the people instead of leaving God 
alone to carry out his plan of destruction. God wants Moses to speak up for his people. And the other interesting point is, is in verse 10 is that, that God uses words that echo Genesis 12 verse 2. Remember the promise that he made to Abraham? He said to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation. He promises Moses in very similar words that if Moses can just step back for a moment, God will go back in time, so to speak, and will start over, this time with Moses, to fulfill his promise to Abraham. So he is introducing this idea of covenant promises into the conversation. He's laying out a basis for Moses to speak on behalf of the people. He's setting the stage for Moses for what he does next. And Moses takes that, that and he, he takes what God says, and he runs with it. He takes those very words, and he points them back to God. He doesn't speak on the basis of his own merits. He doesn't rely on the accumulated merits of the people. He takes his cue from what God said, and he goes back to the, to the one thing that he can rely on, which is God's promises to his people. And on the basis of those promises and those promises alone, God relents from destroying his people. It's pretty interesting, isn't it? And it's also interesting that when Moses comes back to God a second time at the end of the chapter, he uses a different approach. He doesn't refer to the promises anymore at the end there. Look at what he does from verse 30 onwards. He offers himself up not just as a mediator, but as an actual substitute. And at that point, God rejects his offer. Why? Because it would never satisfy God's justice. Remember, for God to receive full payment, he needs more than compensation for, for what has been done wrong. He needs perfect love and obedience. He needs sinlessness. And Moses is not that man. Moses is not that mediator. Incidentally, this is also why penance is of no use. Penance is an act of hardship or self-humiliation intended to show repentance for sin. As the Catechism of the Catholic Church puts it, section 1459, theirs is a bit longer than ours, it says, quote, Raised up from sin, the sinner must still recover his full spiritual health by doing something more to make amends for the sin. He must make satisfaction for or expiate his sins. This satisfaction is also called penance, end quote. Where in the Bible does it say that? And how could man, or the church for that matter, ever dictate the terms for restoration? How could an act that is temporary and limited ever in any way satisfy the demand of God which is eternal. But are we Reformed people really that much better? Don't we sometimes think in the back of our minds that good behavior would somehow compensate for bad behavior? That's what we think. We know better, of course. Theologically, we know better, but, but we think this. Sometimes Reformed people can live with so much anxiety. Is it possible that sometimes, not all times, but maybe sometimes, this anxiety comes from a sense of inadequacy. And this sense of inadequacy is it maybe shaped by, by the realization that nothing we do will ever satisfy God's justice. Is that maybe some of the thinking that happens in our, 
minds when we're confused. See, our problem is we always want to do it on our own terms. In the previous chapters of Exodus, God had given directions for the tabernacle service. He lays it all out very beautifully. He says, this is how I want to be approached. And then the people build this golden calf because they want to approach God on their own terms. And you don't get to do that. You do not get to approach God on your own terms. Not then, not now, not ever. God does not want our penance. God wants us to repent and to believe. It's like that old hymn, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. The second stanza, if you're familiar with it, says, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite show? No, could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. And that is exactly right. That is the gospel in one stanza. Until we understand that, we're going to remain anxious and compare ourselves to the people around us and feel spiritually inadequate. The fact is that we cannot pay. No mediator can pay for us either. No, no mere creature, I mean, can pay for us either. What we need is a mediator. And there's only one. That's Christ. The only way out. The only salvation. Who can face God's justice? Can you? You can't. But Christ did. The catechism goes on in its last question and answer to, to say what kind of mediator and deliverer must we seek? And it goes on to say one who is both man and God. And that's Jesus. Jesus, says the writer of the letter to the Hebrews, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has, has more honor than the house itself. We need a mediator who is not just a decent man or a good man, but a true and righteous man and yet more powerful than all creatures. That is one who is at the same time true God. There's only one person who fits that description. That is Jesus, God's son. Because Jesus is God's son, he alone has the inherent right to act as a mediator and a deliverer. Hebrews 3 goes on to say, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken of later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And you notice in verse 32 of our reading, um, Moses is, is speaking to God and he says, if you will forgive their sin, and then there's a dash. His words trail off. He, he never finishes his sentence. He's, he cannot, he cannot, Give anything to God to lend weight to that request. He has to plead with God, but Jesus doesn't plead with God. Jesus takes what is his right. He asks for, for that which is his right. He is, like we sang in hymn 38, our mighty advocate and friend. He doesn't need to plead with God. He simply asks for that which is his right. Such a great high priest we have, strong to help Supreme to save. Jesus alone satisfied God's justice. And here's why. He alone satisfied God's justice. Because satisfaction was not extracted from him against his will. He gave it freely. He suffered and he paid at the same time. He bore the punishment without rancor, without 
anger, without sin. He, he loved the Lord, his God, with all his heart, soul, and mind, and his neighbor as himself, and he did that to his very last breath. He did not stop loving God even under the full extremity of the curse. He submitted to God's judgment without ever questioning it. He was not resentful that sin had to be punished. He was merely, he merely lamented that people sinned at all. That is why even when he was suffering the uttermost punishment of God, he could still call him my God. When Jesus satisfied God's justice, he suffered hellish agony. As a form for the celebration of the Lord's Supper puts it so well, on the cross he humbled himself in body and soul to the very deepest shame and anguish of hell, but he did not respond with the anger and the rebellion of hell. And that was the difference. That was the difference. As Klaas Hilder once put it, Christ on the cross was not a copy of the sinner with his anger and rebellion and hell. God did not make a copy of the damned who rage against God and who weep and gnash their teeth and put that on the cross and then accept that. That is not what happened on the cross. No, Jesus submitted himself willingly to God's justice. He satisfied every demand of that justice. He did it perfectly. The Father gave his Son for sinners. The Son offered himself up to save sinners and to honor the Father. So, Jesus, in a sense, stepped into the dash. He stepped into those words that, that Moses spoke but could not finish. Because unlike Moses, he was perfect. That's why he alone deserved to be raised and to ascend into heaven. And that means that we are absolutely sure that he has made satisfaction for our sins. Hebrews 9, verse 11 and 12 says that when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And when God begins working in our lives, that's when we begin to understand these things. We begin to be renewed, to see these things clearly, to to understand them is a sign of renewal. It's evidence that God is working in your life. If, if you think about this and if, you, if it makes sense to you and if you turn it over in your minds, you start to become convicted about this. That is evidence of God's work in your life. That's a sign of renewal. And that is why we should never think that we are finished with the catechism after one pass through. We need to keep on coming back to Lord's Day 5 every year. We should never stop asking these questions because God himself evokes these questions in our hearts because he wants us to think about this. As we mature in the faith, we begin to acknowledge his claim more and more. We more and more learn to understand what it means to pray for the forgiveness of sins, what that actually all entails. By nature, we are inclined to hate God and our neighbor. So when you start asking these questions, that is a sign of regeneration. That is the real thing. That's evidence of God's work in our lives. And that is why Lord's Day 5 is in the section on deliverance. Did you notice that? Lord's Day 5 begins the section on our deliverance, and that's why. Because it's 
It's part of, of the evidence of renewal in our lives, the evidence of God's work. The focus in this Lord's Day is not ultimately on punishment. It is on deliverance and renewal. The episode of the golden calf teaches us that all true worship, all true faith, depends on a mediator. After the golden calf, it is clear that the covenant will only ever continue by God's grace. The church will only ever continue by God's grace. You are only ever going to continue by God's grace. That's what this morning was about. Faith should never be taken for granted. What we do here should never be perceived as a ritual. In fact, if your faith is only a ritual, it cannot and will not save you. True faith needs to come from a contrite heart. It needs to come from a place of humility that acknowledges God's justice and God's right to demand that his justice be satisfied. It does not argue with the words of Lord's Day 5, but goes back to read them again and again. We learn to acknowledge God's justice. We learn to acknowledge his claim over our lives. We learn to pray, forgive us our debts every day. So don't just be religious, dear brothers and sisters. Esau was religious. Saul was religious. Judas was religious. And ultimately, none of these people were saved. Instead, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God and he will freely pardon. One day we will all stand in God's courtroom. What will the verdict over your life be? Amen.